guest who's visiting, a special welcome. Thanks for spending your morning with us here. Um, our passage this morning is in 1 Peter chapter 1, which is on page 1014. If you want to use the Bible that's under one of the chairs, I'll allow you to turn there. There's an outline in your bulletin. And uh, while you turn there and find that, let me just share a couple of quick things. Uh, if you are newer here and you haven't attended this class that we call our Foundations class over three uh, weeks, a couple of the elders meet with uh, you uh, downstairs during this 11 to 12 o'clock hour, and we share more about our beliefs, our distinctives, the way and the reason scripturally that we do church the way we do and and treat each other the way we do. And it's also a part of affirming membership of here. That's an important and necessary thing for us to get to know you and hear about you. Uh, and that's coming up. It's going to be November 4th, 11th, and 18th downstairs during this hour. So I encourage you, ask you to join us for that if you haven't attended that class yet. Uh, also, we have a contact card, or you can do this digitally via email if you want to reach out to any of the pastors uh, to either send us a prayer request that we pray for or every week confidentially, or if you uh, would like to get to know us or you're open to that, we would love to get to know you better, uh, you can use the card for that as well. All right. I think those are the important things to share. Uh, before Ben comes up to preach, uh, if you're able, will you please stand and we'll read verses uh, 17 through 21 from 1 Peter. This is the word of the Lord. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, so your faith and hope are in God. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Redeemer, Jesus. We thank you for that great ransom price that he paid to free us from sin to make us right with you. Lord, open our eyes and our hearts again this morning to these great truths and draw our hearts to Jesus once again. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In the fall of 1939, Nazi Germany overran Poland and began the systematic imprisonment and murder of millions of Jewish people. The Nazis took control of all property and businesses owned by Jews, and in the void created by the Nazis, many profiteering people sought to take control of the formerly Jewish-owned businesses. One of those people was a German named Oskar Schindler. I'm sure many of you 
know that name from the movie. Schindler was a member of the Nazi party and leading up to the invasion had served as a spy for the Nazis. He was viewed favorably by the Nazis and was given preferential treatment when he applied to take control of a business. On the advice of his Jewish accountant, Itzhak Stern, he bought a factory and began to employ Polish nationals, both non-Jewish and Jewish. As the war progressed and the Nazis' plan for the nation of Israel became clear, the local Nazi authorities demanded that Schindler give up his Jewish workers to be sent to concentration camps. The Nazis sent these Jews to places like Auschwitz and Sobibor, Nazi concentration camps where if they survived the train ride where there was no food and no water, they would be promptly taken to gas chambers and murdered. Men, women, children, elderly, all were to be destroyed as a part of Hitler's final solution for Jews. At about the same time, he witnessed what could only be called the liquidation of a Jewish ghetto in Krakow. Witnessing such barbarism, his heart changed from one motivated by profit to one motivated by human love. He made it his mission to save as many Jews as possible. He began to bribe Nazi officials to allow the workers to continue at his factory. He would claim that they were critical to his factory, which was supposed to be manufacturing shell casings for German artil artillery, but wasn't even really doing that. The truth was different as it related to these workers. In some cases, the Jews that he was saving weren't even able to work or contribute to his factory at all, whether it be due to age or health or strength or even mental capacity. He was buying their freedom out of love and concern. He continued to bribe the Nazis with money and gifts to win the Jews' freedom. At one point, he gave the local Nazi camp ruler a bag of jewels to buy him off. At great cost to himself, he saved over 1,000 Jews from a certain death. Schindler had effectively ransomed these people from certain death into life. Our passage this morning centers on this idea of ransom. We've been learning about the suffering saints spread around the diaspora. We've heard about how suffering produces a faith that is more precious than gold, how our salvation is so great that even the angels wish that they better understood it, and about the call to a life that is marked by holiness and obedience. Now, Peter is going to anchor the reason for these suffering saints' ongoing endurance and their ultimate hope. He's going to anchor that in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Specifically, Peter will point to not only the mechanics of our redemption, which is through a ransom payment, but to the Redeemer himself, Jesus. It cost Schindler great personal wealth to free the Jews. It cost God much more than personal wealth. It cost him his own son to free sinners. So great is the work of redemption that Puritan Thomas Watson contrasted it to the work of creation and found redemption to be much greater and much, much more costly. Listen to what he says. Great was the work of creation, 
but greater the work of redemption. It cost more to redeem us than to make us. In the work of creation, it was but the speaking of a word. In redemption, the shedding of blood. The creation was but the work of God's fingers. Redemption was the work of his arm. Before we get into our outline, we're going to spend some time talking about ransom. It really is the key word in verse 18. You may have noted that um, uh, the the version that Nate read, uh, the word redeemed was used. And and the two are actually interchangeable. Your, Your version of the Bible may say redeemed. And while that is certainly the big picture of what is happening, I actually think ransom is a better word to use here. Now, the Greek word, bear with me as we do a little Greek here, okay? But it'll be worth it. The Greek, the Greek word for ransom is lutron, which comes from the word, root word luo or lua. Lua was used to describe the process of unwinding bandages or of unbinding the chains of a prisoner. Lua is also where we get our word loose. So at the root of ransoming is this idea of loosening. So, but ransom is much more than that. In order for there to be a loosening, a release from capture, there has to be a price paid. Ransoming includes both payment and loosening. So that will be our definition of ransom, payment for release. Now, depending on your age, you may remember, and you're going to date yourself. You don't have, I won't ask you to raise your hands. But you may date, date yourself if you know these pop culture references to ransom. Shortly after President Kennedy's assassination, Frank Sinatra Jr. was kidnapped. His kidnappers, de- uh, kidnappers demanded $240,000, which is about $2 million in today's dollars. And they demanded that in ransom for his release. Perhaps you remember Mel Gibson playing the father of a kidnapped child in the 1996 movie Ransom. And the most recent occurrence of ransom in pop culture is the advent of malicious software called ransomware, whereby a hacker actually takes control of your computer and your files and won't release those files back to you until you make a ransom payment in cash or, as is more common, some type of cryptocurrency like Ether or Bitcoin. What do all these references have in common? Someone was captured or held by something and a price had to be paid to release them. And once that price was paid, they were released to something. Frank Jr. back to his father, the son back to Mel Gibson in the movie Ransom, and the files back to their propeller and rifle owner with ransomware. What we're going to see today and what is provided to you in your outline is a similar concept. Jesus, our Redeemer, has ransomed us. Hallelujah. That is a wonderful, amazing thing that he has ransomed us. But what does it really mean? Ultimately, what I hope we will see this morning is how great our Redeemer is and how great our salvation is in Him. But to get there, we need to more fully unpack the meaning of being ransomed. So the first point in your outline, we'll look at what He ransomed us from. Then we'll look at how He ransomed us. And finally, we'll look at what He has ransomed us to. So we hope to gain a better understanding of this concept of ransom, but ultimately, we want to know the one who paid the ransom for our release, the one who redeemed us and the one who saved us, Jesus. So with that, let's move to uh, point one in our outline, ransomed from what, which is 
uh, verse 18, and really just the first part of verse 18. And I'm going to go a little bit out of, out of order, but I think it'll make sense as we progress through our text this morning. You know, we've already identified that a ransom is only needed when someone is bound up, when they're held captive, or in, when they're enslaved. Only when the price is paid can there be loosening. Can that release from captivity take place? We know it is Jesus who has ransomed us, but from what have we been ransomed? Well, Peter tells us right here in verse 18. He says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. That's what we have been ransomed from. And actually, in verse 14, he writes something very similar. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And certainly, he's including that in the scope of what was holding, uh, holding us and hold these, holding these original hearers captive. Now, the original hearers of this letter or readers of this letter who were Gentiles, when they heard this from him, the, the kind of former passions, the, uh, the former way of life, their ignorance, it was 100% futile. Most likely, they would have thought of their pagan system of religion. Of a, with as many gods and its myths, they would have thought about the futility of bowing down to idols of wood and stone made with hands. They would have thought about how they lived in ignorance of God, darkened in their understanding, outside of the light of God's countenance, and completely unaware of the one true religion, which is Jesus. They would have thought of how their lives outside of God were held captive by their passions, Passion for money, for power, for control, for sex. Before they had been ransomed by Jesus, they were not in control of their lives. Perhaps they thought they were, but they won't. They weren't. Instead, they were ruined by their passions, which drove them from one destructive behavior to another. What about us? Outside of Christ, outside of Him, are we any different? Titus 3.3 says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. This indictment of human nature applies every bit as much to us as it did to the original recipients of this letter. So in our context and in this moment, the gods we formerly bowed down to aren't made of metal or stone or with human hands, but our former way of life was every bit as futile and ignorant as the original hearers. We can't see the gods that we worship, but they were and are still here. Last week, we learned about how the way of thinking in this world, the schema of things. As Rick taught us about the schema, the way of thinking. The schema of things which are valued in this world is very different from the schema of things that God values. You know, in the U.S., I think of the, the rugged individualism that we value so much. For those of us who can remember seeing the Marlboro Man and those, uh, those ads kind of, you know, mounted high on his horse unfettered by the strictures of society, free from the burdens and expectations of relationship, at liberty to roam the untamed rages. Now, Reed, I know you're already daydreaming. You can come back to us. 
The problem is that this ideal aligns with absolutely nothing in Scripture. The church is compared to a family. It's actually compared to a family and a body. And a family, if, if nothing else, is interdependent on one another, not independent. And a body needs all of its parts working properly to work well. Perhaps a, a more modern form of the rugged individualism that, we, that I think we have this tendency in our culture in the West to, to hold aloft is, is uh, this example of uh, what you see here and today and this idea of wanting to express ourselves. We are told that the highest form of being, that the greatest actualization for ourselves, the greatest actualization is actually if we would just be who we are, be the way that we have been made, that's the highest and best you. Again, this could not be more misaligned with what Jesus teaches than giving a toddler a lighter. It's a terrible idea and the two just don't go together. I could go on. In some form or fashion, all sin deceives. I mean, Hebrews 3.13 tells us that sin is deceitful. Sin is deceitful and that it will not only deceive you, it will harden your heart against the things of God. Think about the idea that money can protect you. This is a very deceitful idea. And I think it's one that we're susceptible to as well here in the West. That money can shield me. It can protect me from the bad things in this life. Maybe you've heard of Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. It's named after a man named Cornelius Vanderbilt, who was a, truly a titan of industry in the early and kind of mid-19th century. When Cornelius Vanderbilt died, he was America's wealthiest man. And if you were to extrapolate the money that he had then and, and put it into today's dollars, he'd be, no kidding, worth about $100 billion, with a B, $100 billion. That's how wealthy he was. But listen to this. Within 30 years of his death, not one of his heirs was still a millionaire. All that he had given them was frittered away into comparatively nothing. The gods of money, sex, power, individualism, self-expression, they are 100% futile. They lead to a vain useless and worthless existence. Here's what Jesus said about them. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Here's what I actually find more concerning, especially for us here at Orchard. I think most of us here know that it's not a good idea to put your hope and money, and that it's not a good idea to pursue a life of passion and lust. We know these things. What concerns me more for this body here is the insidious ways of thinking and living that seem good but are actually useless. This, this to me, is the devil's greatest schema, his most deceitful schema. For example, we love our neighbors and our family. We work hard. We work hard at our jobs and so forth. 
After all, we think to ourselves, I'm definitely better, definitely better than that guy at work who lies to our boss. And I'm definitely better than that woman who gossips at the gym. We think about these things we do for God. Think about all the things we do for God. We come to church. We give money at church. We serve one another at church. All these things are good things, but there's a problem. There's a problem with that logic. We are comparing ourselves to others when we should be comparing ourselves to God's standard. And the issue here is there is no way that anyone, no one, not one, can meet God's holy standard. We are born corrupted by sin and spiritually dead. That, this is the captivity and the condemnation into which we are born and from which we need freed. The spiritual genes that we have inherited from Adam, they are not life to us. They are death to us. God's holiness is so pure and untainted and unblemished that no person can attain to it. All people have fallen short of God's standard. And so without a ransom payment to God to make up for our sin, we will be punished in hell forever. We need a ransom to be paid to God to satisfy his righteousness. We need a ransom to be paid that meets God's perfect holiness. We need a ransom to be paid to bring us back from death into life, to free us from the condemnation of our sin and to make us righteous before God. What kind of payment could ransom us from this dreadful plight? Well, let's answer that question in point two in your outline. Ransomed with what? In verse 18, we see that the ransom price is nothing less than the precious blood of Christ. He says this, Peter writes this rather, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. I'm sorry, I said verse 18, I meant verse 19. It's the precious blood of Christ. Peter compares the blood of Christ to silver and gold. They perish, but Jesus' blood is precious. The material, finite, destructible nature of silver and gold are contrasted with with the infinite, indestructible, priceless blood of Christ. And not only is there a contrast here that's being made, but the silver and gold are actually meant to amplify what Peter means. Effectively, he's saying you value silver and gold, or we could say in our context, money. Value silver and gold so much because it is of great earthly value. But let me tell you, the price of your ransom could never have been paid with silver or gold or any earthly thing. Even beautiful, valuable things like silver and gold aren't enough. No, it could have only been paid for with something much more value, something of infinite value. It could have only been paid with the precious blood of Jesus. The only ransom price that God would accept to make a way for release from captivity to sin is the blood of Jesus. This is really something. But I think we need to answer two questions about the blood of Christ. What does the blood represent 
And what makes it so precious? Some have believed that blood refers to the life-giving aspect that's in blood. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And the argument goes that Jesus' blood is life-giving, that his actual physical blood gives life. This thinking, however, does not square with orthodoxy or with Scripture. Blood is a common word in both the Old Testament and New Testament. In the Old Testament, it actually shows up 362 times. And the majority of those, it actually refers to a violent death. In the Old Testament, atonement for sins was signified with blood and animals. Animals were killed and their blood was splattered over the mercy seat above the Ark of the Covenant inside the Holy of Holies. The only way, now think, how, how do you get the blood out of the animal except to kill the animal, to take its life? So the blood points not to the giving of life, but to the, ta- the life taken. It is the taking of life, not the life that was in the blood that atones. And it is death, not life, that reconciles people with God. In the the New Testament, there are 98 instances of the word blood, 47 of which refer to Jesus' blood. In most of those cases, it is a reference to his death on the cross. Now, time and context don't allow us to go much further, but we can conclude with this. Blood is not a reference to the life-giving nature of physical blood. So then if blood isn't about life and instead represents the death of the one from which the blood came, then we can say that blood is a direct reference and really a more graphic and descriptive way to refer to Jesus' death on the cross. When the Bible says the blood of Christ, it means his sacrificial death on the cross. So we know what blood means. What makes it so precious? What's so precious about Jesus' blood? Peter says that Jesus' blood was like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Now, in the kind of the context of these original hearers or readers of this letter would have been sort of what we would call Greco-Roman, you know, Greece and Roman culture. And certainly slavery for them is something that would have been well understood and common in those times. But I think it's interesting. Peter was a Jew. And not just a Jew who was in the diaspora, but a Jew right there in Palestine. So I think when he's talking about a lamb without blemish or spot, he's actually thinking about the Passover. Now, remember, what happened at the Passover? So God had been working on Pharaoh to get him to release the Israelites from, from Egypt. And he had sent nine plagues. And Pharaoh just continued to harden his heart, and he would not let the Israelites go. And so finally, God said, I'm going to send a final and last plague. I'm going to send my angel of death, and the firstborn in every home will be killed unless the blood of a a male lamb without blemish or spot would be sacrificed. And the blood, hyssop branch, be dipped in that blood and marked On the posts, on both sides, and the lentil across the top between the posts. Now, if that be done, my angel of death will pass over that home. And you will be protected. Really, I think that Peter is mentioning this lamb 
uh, without blemish or spot because the Passover lamb was really just a symbol and a foreshadowing of the redemption and the ransom of Jesus' death on the cross. Ultimately, we see then that the Passover lamb pointed to the lamb of God, that is Jesus. But here's the thing. Jesus is much better. He is much better than the Passover lamb. I mean, just take one example. The Passover lamb was good for one night. On that one night, there would be a, in a sense, a forgiveness of sins, a passing over where there would be no blood taken from that home. Jesus' blood is good for sins past, present, and future. It covers us not just one time, but at all times. So in the final analysis, we must say that Jesus then, his blood is precious. But why is his blood precious? Because it is the one who gave the blood who is precious. It's because Jesus is precious. I like lists, so I'm going to give you five reasons why Jesus is precious, okay? First, Jesus is precious because in his humanity, he perfectly obeyed the whole law and suffered the punishment for human sin. To make atonement for sin and to ransom us from sin, the sacrifice had to be of like kind. That's why Hebrews 2.17 says, he, that is Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So he had to become like one of us so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to do what? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. And here's the amazing thing. Even though he was fully human, he was sinless. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. So Jesus is precious because he became one of us and suffered and was tempted like us, but never sinned, perfectly fulfilling all the law and commandments that we never could. The second reason that Jesus is precious is because in his deity, his sacrifice was able to cover not only the sin of one person, but the sin of all who would ever believe on him. You see, if Jesus was only a man and not God, not the word who was with God and was with, uh, with God and was God from eternity past, his obedience and suffering would have been effective to cover just one other person. But because Jesus is the God-man, his obedience and sacrifice had infinite value. Because of that infinite value of his life, his sacrifice then, his suffering was perfect and effective for not just one person, but for all of the elect believers. So Jesus is precious because of his deity. Number three, Jesus is precious because as verse 20 says, he was foreknown or chosen. You might have that in your version. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Well, why is this important? It means that Jesus isn't an afterthought or wasn't an afterthought for God. God knew that we would rebel against him and that the only way to redeem us was with the blood of his own son. So this is amazing. From eternity past, before there was time, the God had planned for the second person of the Trinity, 
to go and suffer for our sins and bring us back to God. So Jesus is precious because he was foreknown and chosen. Number four, Jesus is precious because when, we, when he went to the cross obediently to suffer for us, he did so thinking of you and thinking of me. The second half of verse 20 says that he was made manifest in these last times. Last times is simply just a reference from the time of, of Jesus' death and resurrection until his return. So in these last times, in between those times, he was made manifest for the sake of you. And despite what lay ahead of him, this is, this is amazing. Think about what kind of love this is. Despite what lay ahead of him, he did not go begrudgingly or out of a sense of burdensome duty. He went in love. Now, he may not have felt loving. There was no mushy, gushy feelings going on. But here's the most important part. His actions were the most important or most loving thing that could be done. And that makes him dearly precious, brothers and sisters. And finally, the fifth reason why Jesus is precious is because, as verse 21 says, he has been raised to life again. His resurrection did not pay for our sins. It was not the ransom. But what it did do is it placed an impermeable seal upon what he did at the cross. It was the sign and guarantee of the validity and the effectiveness of his atoning blood. It shows that it was planned and foreknown before the foundation of the world, that it accomplished what it meant to accomplish, that Jesus is who he says he is, and that death and sin are defeated, and that Jesus is glorified now and will be glorified when he returns. These, let's take a breath. These are some great spiritual truths that honestly we need to be reminded of on a, on a frequent basis and really confirmed in and girded up as we learned last week, girded up in our minds. But here's the thing, that would not be enough. Ask any person in a healthy marriage for any significant amount of time. Ask them if their spouse is more beautiful or more handsome more precious and more treasured now than on their wedding day. And invariably, they will say yes. In that same way as we walk this life with Jesus, across the mountaintops of the greatest joys and sweetest victories, and when he carries us through the valleys of deepest despair and unbearable pain, we too are able to say to our Lord Jesus that he is more precious and treasured to us now than he has ever been before. Pearls are a beautiful thing. Guys, here's a pro tip. If you haven't bought your wife any pearls, you need to, okay? It's pretty easy. You can get some earrings here. You can maybe even do a little necklace. But, uh, you know, they're timeless. You need to do it if you haven't already. The thing is, the pearls that most women wear today are cultured pearls, made with the assistance of, uh, of man actually implanting sort of like a foreign object inside the oyster, and it's around that foreign object that the oyster actually makes the pearl. And they've perfected the process. A Japanese uh, man named Mikimoto is the one who came up with it. But prior to this invention, the only way to obtain pearls was by diving, and harvesting the oysters in which they grew. 
And oftentimes, this came at great peril, great peril and cost to the divers. Often, divers had to dive over 100 feet deep to get to the oysters. Free diving to those depths, if you haven't figured it out already, is extremely dangerous. It is cold and dark, and there are extreme pressure changes. Divers would actually grease their bodies to conserve heat. They would put greased cotton in their ears to help with the pressure. They would clip their noses and actually hold large rocks as they descended to these great depths so that they wouldn't expend energy on the way down. Divers risked waves, eye damage, and this is really interesting. They actually risked drowning as they would come to the surface. They could have shallow water blackout, pass out and drown in shallow water. All of that to retrieve these little pearls. They recognized the great value of retrieving the pearl. And in the same way, though, brothers and sisters, Jesus risked it all and came down to get us. He left the Father's side. He plunged those dark depths and became like us. He left, imagine this, He left the light and the beauty of being at the Father's side. He set that aside. He put on humanity like us and went into that cold and dark place to save us. So while we hold fast our confession of what has been accomplished and who he is, and we meditate upon these great truths as we have this morning, I just want also for us to grow in a deepening richness of relationship with Jesus that results in him being more precious to us than anything else in this world. And when we do that, our minds and our hearts will be aligned not only with what we feel is true, but what is actually objectively true. For there is nothing more real, there is nothing more objectively true than Jesus. And we'll see now in the last point of our outlines, our relationship with God through Jesus is really the fuel for holiness. So point three in your outlines, ransom to what? Last week we heard about being holy as God himself is holy and how that isn't only outward obedience, but it's a life characterized by obedience in our inner parts, our minds and our hearts. And how holiness is about being set apart, not away from others, but set apart unto God. And Peter continues that thought with the one command he gives in this passage. It's interesting, just one command amongst all these things. That we are to conduct ourselves with reverent fear of God. Verse 17 says, And if you call on him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now just a brief note, this is not fear in the sense of grovel.